Becoming an Anti-Racist, the podcast. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Mina Abdi, and in this episode I'm joined by two esteemed educators, Nahida Maharasingham and Nelson Bayami, who are going to be talking to us about their experiences of engaging in anti-racist practice in their educational settings, and some of the challenges that they've encountered in doing this work through the pandemic and during and after the lockdown within their different contexts. So my name is Nelson. I work in the Sixth Form College in North East London, um, and uh, my role is Manager of Diversity, Inclusion and Wellbeing. Uh, I'm also an English teacher, uh, and so what I'm trying to work to make sure happens is that the college's strategic plan, which is very heavily inclusive focused now, continues to make sure that everything that we do from a systems and structures perspective is done through a range of lenses, one of which is an anti-racist one. Hi, I'm Nahida Maharasingham. I'm the head teacher of Rathburn Primary School in Lewisham, and I've been there for quite some time. And our whole approach is really underpinned by a commitment to, um, well, disrupt the trajectories, particularly for disadvantaged and disadvantaged pupils of colour. So that's the real focus for us. And I am now in the second year of being the project lead across Lewisham schools that's primary nursery primary secondary and colleges in leading um, the strategy to embed race equity across our school community brilliant thank you so much and one of the main reasons why i invited you both onto this space is because you do such incredible work within your your specific settings and that work hasn't really been disrupted um so to speak by what we've been seeing around covid and the the challenges that we've been seeing in the social space it has presented its challenges, but the work hasn't halted in your anti-racism commitment. And so I just want to have this as an opportunity for us to just think about what that work was um, in your school prior to COVID and how that work must have changed as a result of some of the consequences that we've been seeing with COVID and what have been some of those challenges that you've seen in your in your specific setting. So Nahida, I know that you work very closely with your, your students and the families and the wider community that surrounds your school. What have been some of the fundamental challenges of, of COVID on that community? So, I mean, huge challenges, you know, obviously grappling with the pandemic, with the disruption to children's education and, you know, families having to suddenly take a completely different role in that space of education has been hugely challenging. And then the whole digital interface has been a huge kind of learning curve for families, but also the staff team. So, you know, shifting from classroom to remote class learning platform has been hugely challenging, but also for so many of our children, because they're so young, actually that remote learning platform just hasn't worked. And it's the legacy of that is that, you know, the, the divide of those that have and those that don't has just got bigger. And for us, the, the challenge is now to work with kind of the fallout of COVID, which has just exacerbated already entrenched inequalities. So it's how do we lead with that drive and humanity and relentless sort of pursuit to empower our children um, through dismantling lots of the structures and working on the pedagogy in a compassionate way. So how do we lead? How do we teach? How do we relate with compassion but rigour? And I, I love the fact that you've emphasised compassion and we're going to come back to that um, um, in a moment because it's such an important part of the work that we're doing but now more than ever uh, Nelson, what has been the, the consequence of COVID for the work that you've been doing at the college and the learning, that as a learning space for students? Yeah, similar to Nahida there, I think the, the huge level of disruption on a range of levels, uh, personal, emotional, psychological, structural, global, so many different factors that have changed the way we view what education is and what 
what it's for, I suppose. Um, but yeah, the moving from the face-to-face to the to the digital, perhaps slightly more straightforward for us in that we're working the post-16 center. And we changed our timetable such that it meant that students would have more of an opportunity to um, engage in their learning in a way that meant that it was different to what the way it was when it wasn't face-to-face. So we've had to do a lot of uh, adapting as we went. But again, like Nahida says, it gives us an opportunity to start thinking about the humanity of the situation and that we need to think differently about the way we interface with each other. And yeah, the, the kind of the magnification of inequalities as a result of COVID has really given us a, a chance in some ways to just have a bit of a reset. The fact that we're not in college as much as we used to be means a lot mm. of the, the, the staff go have had an opportunity to meet and say, well, what are we going to do differently moving forward? Now that the landscape has changed, how can we address things in a different way from a range of factors? So from an anti-racist perspective, how do we do things differently? How, like you say, how do we integrate much more compassion and in a more explicit fashion, I suppose, and in a much more consistent fashion than before? And so those have been, I suppose, the biggest things we've had to consider in terms of how we change what we do. And now we've gone back to face to face. Again, our timetable is different uh, to make it um, hopefully more straightforward for those interactions for students, less stressful where possible. We've had to change completely the teaching and learning structures and, and the schemes of work so that it factors in the fact that there's been a disruption to the education while also acknowledging that the, the inequalities need to be addressed in a different way. So we've been trying to look at how to, uh, to decolonize or be more inclusive. And I suppose the lockdowns have given us an opportunity to um, sit down and look at those potential changes with time that perhaps we won't be, weren't, uh, wouldn't have been given otherwise. So we've tried to use this as an opportunity to think positively about how we can move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that willingness to change and that acknowledgement that a new way of working is possible has opened the door for, for many people who saw this as extra work that needed yeah. to be done rather than changing practice. How has it been for staff, though, given the fact that during COVID, with the changes in delivery, um, a huge amount of workload was required of them having to adapt, having to think carefully about the, the needs, the varying needs of students. How have staff been supported coming back into the space and doing face-to-face delivery, but also keeping in mind the work that that's required of them to look at anti-racist practice? Um, from our perspective, I suppose, being able to make sure that there's more of a sense of uh, collaborative work amongst the different teams. Uh, we've introduced the idea of compassionate education uh, into our strategic plan and into our, into our core so that there's more of an opportunity to be compassionate to the self first and foremost then in our team meetings spend a lot more time and in our cpd training a lot of time has been um, invested in anti-racism training mental health and well-being training compassionate education training to make sure those are absolutely front and center in everything that we're doing Um, and then allowing some staff to have time and space to explore those particular ideas and think about how they might manifest in their everyday practice and i suppose the support mechanisms is uh, by making those the focus, it allows for a higher sense of trust uh, amongst the staff um, mm. in terms of being more vulnerable in some ways, I suppose. And from an anti-racist perspective, um, making sure that the strategy groups that we have, so we've got an anti-racism strategy group, a mental health and well-being strategy group, and an equality and diversity strategy group, those have been maintained And I suppose those are some of the mechanisms that we've been using to make sure that those particular values continue to be explored and navigated through systems that allow us to feel supported because we've got structures, although they're relatively new, are in play and can be used to to, to help feel supported. Absolutely. And I think what's really important and what you and Nahida both highlighted is that it does come back down to compassion. And what's really important in the work that you're doing, Nelson, is that there is a commitment to understanding and supporting the mental health of staff and recognising that this work requires a certain degree of vulnerability. And they're coming out of a a space and a time where things have felt incredibly uncertain and and there has been a high degree of vulnerability. And they're asked to process that. They're asked to 
work through that and, and think about engaging in anti-racism work with that time, with that um, headspace, and the support available for them is going to be crucial. What's the responsibility of leaders to support both staff and students in maintaining the momentum and the focus around anti-racism and, and, and equity more broadly in HEDA, but at the same time ensuring that everybody feels psychologically safe in the space as this work is happening? From my perspective, you know, even pre-COVID, the optimum learning culture is a safe space, is a no-blame space, is a space where there is a genuine commitment to support the growth and development of your team. And, you know, adding on COVID to it just in some ways made us just realise what a team we were in, in my school because everybody really did kind of get together, take the challenge because they love the children and they have a deep commitment to kind of social justice. The anti-racist work is not, hasn't been an add-on. In fact, it's taken us to a deeper, richer space of compassion and humanity. And what it's actually done is made people aware that even in a really great, powerful community, working in and creating an anti-racist space has meant that every single person suddenly feels safe, either to be understood more deeply by their colleagues or for other people to have a better, richer insight and therefore have a capacity to reach children and families in a much more authentic way. Because you think about children and you think <clears throat> you want to create the right, the kind of the right environment that affirms them, that makes them feel safe, that acknowledges who they are when they come into that space. Exactly the same is true for adults. It's a, it's a challenge because I often sit down and I think, did I speak to that person today? Did that person get a smile from me? But if everybody's doing it, if everybody's more metacognitive, more aware of themselves within that space mm. and how much space they take up. So anti-racism's work for me just makes us better people. Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you hit the nail on the head in, in saying this is about the work on the self and work on the space, as well as everything that, that is in, in that environment. I think very often when we're talking to teachers in particular, because of the language around anti-racism and the commitment that we've seen nationally across different schools, there's a real push for teachers to be looking specifically on the curriculum. And that can sometimes be, what are we doing to look at the content? What we've been doing to challenge the content? And that can sometimes distract us from what are we looking at in terms of the conditions of the environment that we're in? How do we make sure that we are creating a space where learning is possible, where learning in multiple different ways is possible? Can you explain to people a little bit about what anti-racism in the curriculum is and why it's important to look at not just the content, but also what brings that curriculum to life, meaning the, the classroom space and the dynamic in that space? I mean, I could talk about this forever, <clears throat> but, you know, it's probably Nelson's turn to, to speak. But, you know, I always talk about it's not just what you do, it's how you do it. And, you know, you can uh, deliver a diverse curriculum with, you know, with a dehumanising, an unwittingly dehumanising approach. Because racism was contingent upon the hierarchy, class stratification of people you know, according to intelligence, based on their race. So the, the legacy of that still is very, very kind of entrenched in the system, mm -hmm. in our whole... So we have to deeply commit to malleable intelligence. And I guess that is anti-racist, anti-classist, anti-disablest work, because we're so used to writing people off. You know, that, that's and sadly a legacy of education. So for me, it's about really committing to intelligence, being malleable, being highly skilled as a teacher in being able to 
create that safe space, understand your pupils, you know, where, where is the comfort discomfort zone, you know, keeping the stretch there for all pupils, because it's not about low expectations. This is about, you know, pushing all our students and teachers are very high expectations of my team. So it's all of that, as well as making sure that that curriculum acknowledges and reflects the histories of everyone in your community. Just the other, the other day I was doing some work with parents. It happened that most of the parents that logged onto my session were white. Mm. And they asked some beautiful questions. They were talking about how do they decolonize at home? They don't mm. just want it to be happening at school. How do they take their children on a path to understand privilege? And I was so touched by that, you know, that I didn't really have a great answer for it. But I thought, well, maybe we do something together and we work on that. But I've said enough and it's Nelson's yeah. turn. He's got uh, that's a really nice point that you raised there about the work that you're doing seems to be um, having such a far reach in that the parents are now sort of like, how do we take, how can we take this on board and run with it too? And it's not only kind of like a school responsibility. So there's a sense that this is a community wide responsibility and that the work you're doing is able to kind of promote that and manifest that. And it seems that it's, it's been successful. So, you know, thank you for, for making that point. Um, I suppose what we're doing very similarly, you've nicked a lot of the points I'm wanting to make, but it's that idea of, not just focusing on a curriculum, like you say, but thinking about pedagogically, what can we do? And it's really difficult in that, you know, we're coming from a, a centuries old legacy of a, a quite a didactic, imperialistic uh, view of how we teach. And, you know, uh, some of the work that, um, or some of the book clubs I've been involved with Muna have talked about how we can decolonize what we do and look at things from uh, different perspectives in terms of, um, I suppose Paolo Freire and the work that he's been doing around how we can how we can think about positionality in the classroom. I suppose in at Leighton Sixth Form College where I work, one of the things that we've been looking at, particularly in my team, is how, for example, there's a paper from uh, the School of Oriental and African Studies around how they they've got a decolonization toolkit for teaching and learning, and we've been trying to see how we can utilize aspects of that into, into our practice, particularly in in the English and languages team. So especially around things like positionality, not just of uh, the students, but the, the teachers as well, uh, and um, decentralising or decolonising power. So who is the person that speaks the most? Which students tend to maybe speak more than others, but also it's often the case that the teacher will do a lot of the speaking. So trying to take a step back, trying to make the students uh, having a stronger sense of agency and self-advocacy in a classroom and using their knowledge and their experiences to enrich what's happening in the classroom. So we, yeah, there's a lot of work around how can we use the lived experiences of students and get them to understand that as a valuable piece of knowledge production and not just a stereotypical uh, dead white man uh, is the, the kind of where the knowledge comes from in, in our spaces. And that's just one of the ways in which you can kind of make it a much uh, stronger sense of um, a safer space in terms of how you promote teaching and learning from an anti-racist perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what you've both hit the nail on the head is that this is deep work. It requires depth. It requires nuance, understanding the space and asking those, those difficult questions. And I think sometimes when we're looking at the, the phrases of decolonizing the curriculum or anti-racism within teaching and learning, those who don't want to engage with that deep work will go for what can sometimes be a quick fix yeah. or the most obvious or the more visual um, change that happens. And that can just be simply diversifying the, the content. And as Nahida said, that can just, that can cause just as much harm if that content isn't appropriately used. Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to jump in if that's right. It's, it's something that it, it ends up being almost like a knee jerk reaction when you start this process is that lots of people immediately go into diversification of curriculum, which is not the same as anti-racist work or even decolonizing, which is much more much more of an overhaul and a dismantling of structures that can take uh, much longer than people might first anticipate. But I suppose that's where uh, professional development comes in. So we've had CPD training 
around racial literacy and around mental health and well-being as a way of um, helping to begin that process and also to kind of dispel some of those myths around what might be seen as some of those quick fixes because that, like you said they can be more harmful than, than good so I think it's important to, to almost anticipate those potential knee-jerk reactions and then have a plan up front so you can unpick that and explore that in a, in a compassionate and kind of compassionately challenging fashion so that you can make some progress. Nahida, what, what were you going to say around that? I mean, you know, you and I, we're on the same page. Um, uh, so I think pretty much, you know, agree with everything you've said. And, and I'm just, we're just doing it in a different, with younger children. And I think now my work is in some ways working within my school, because we have such a deep commitment to kind of disrupting inequality, because you can't work at Rathburn if injustice doesn't make you angry. You just would never last. You wouldn't last in a morning, you know, because that, that fire in everyone's belly is just so powerful. Everybody's rooting for every child and every family. And sometimes I'm so humbled by the commitment of the team and the detail, the attention they pay to making sure that for example, black boys are not excluded in our school. So the love and the compassion and the patience and attention they have is, is actually very beautiful to witness, but it's rooted in this deep, deep systemic school-wide commitment to we stand up, we never walk by injustice, we do it in the play. You know, that just just a team, but my new, um, something else I was just gonna add about the curriculum is that I think the other mistake that sometimes people make is that, and this is why I love Professor Gilroy's work, because he says, we're not getting rid of the canon. We're not saying don't teach white man stuff. Don't teach, for example, I mean, you're a different level to me, but I'm yeah. thinking of even C.S. Lewis. Yeah. He's not saying don't teach it. He's saying, teach it, but look at it critically. Look at it for what it is and what it says about that time and those values and how much of that complex and that time and period in history is still living with us today. So I think sometimes mm -hmm. people get really worried. Oh, but what about Shakespeare? Or what about, you know, the classics? I'm not saying remove them. And, I, and in fact, we don't. But when we read them, we look at them with that criticality and we we don't, you know, lose the magic of the story, but we will take a point to say, you know, what does this tell you about this time in history? Do we recognise that time now? So we can, we can decolonise in a really creative way, which doesn't kind of deny our children the cultural capital that they may need at some point if they choose to plough the, the field of the system. But <clears throat> the other challenge I've got, and I'm beginning to understand, is that I'm learning to become what they call, I guess, sounds very supercilious, a system leader. Um, you know, so now moving from my school where I am, because like you mentioned, Nelson, the word trust very early on in the conversation, yeah. and it immediately just made me think, well, that's what it's all about but I'm now trying to kind of develop that across Lewisham and I'm learning how much harder it is, how much more of a challenge I've got, how I'm working very differently in that space. Um, but it is about CPD. It's about not losing the message. It's about finding the right moment to engage people, not in a passive listening to Nahida mode, but you actively engage with the data. What is that telling you? And then people are kind of in a position where they've got to draw the insights for themselves. Is this just, is it an unjust? Is this racially just or racially unjust? Anyway, I've said enough, sorry. No, I mean, there's so much there to jump on, really. But I suppose just going back to your point about the different texts, I guess when you're doing anti-racism work or any kind of, yeah, when you're doing anti-racism work, it you inevitably find that because you're attempting to 
make a change, you inevitably hit that wall of resistance because you're trying to um, disrupt the status quo. And the status quo is incredibly powerful. And so what we've tried to do to navigate our way around that to some degree, and also about perhaps people that might be not entirely on board with um, anti-racist work yet, is to talk about how anti-racist work and teaching and learning excellence is the same thing. And so your point about text was around that idea of looking at things through a critical lens. If you want to hit the highest marks in any sort of um, A-level or level three qualification, you have to think about being critically evaluative. And you cannot do that unless you're looking at things like Shakespeare or C.S. Lewis, the text that you mentioned, without being massively critical. And you can do that very uh, nicely for an anti-racist lens, especially if you're looking at something like a fellow, for example. So there's lots of different ways that you can integrate the idea of anti-racism into um, excellent teaching and learning through emphasizing the, the strength of being, uh, of critical thinking through the work that we're doing, which is exactly what you would do in all of the type of high level work you'd want to do. So that was one of the things I wanted to pick up on. And the other thing was around, I suppose, the conversations that you might have with staff. So we've also tried to do at Leighton a lot of work around how we go about having difficult conversations. Now, that could be through any one of the protected characteristics. It could be around mental health and well-being. It could be around anti-racism. And so we tried to do a lot of training with, uh, through CPD around how do you go about having trustworthy and, uh, I suppose, effective dialogues, not only with staff members, but staff to staff, staff to student, where you're trying to tackle difficult conversations. And I think COVID has given us, has allowed us to have an opportunity to say, look, we're going to need to have difficult conversations on a daily basis because of the amount of trauma that we've all suffered to, mm -hmm. to, to one degree or another. You can't now get away from the fact that we need to be much more uh, emotionally intelligent about what we talk about, be that related to mental health and well-being, or indeed anti-racism, or of course, where they obviously dovetail. And so that's been a really large part of what we've been trying to work on. Going back to the idea of, of trust, that idea of compassionate education, but I suppose within, within staff teams, this idea of intelligent accountability as well. So you're going into to, to, to teaching spaces and you haven't been in them maybe for 18 months in the same way as you have now, how can you go about getting on with your work without having, I suppose, a sense of pressure around trying to maintain results, uh, et cetera, et cetera? And how can you let staff be vulnerable to experiment and to change things and to allow them to excel at the same time uh, without, without that pressure that may have existed? Um, and that, again, it's around those, those difficult dialogues that you need to try and have that involve all of the things you've mentioned around trust, compassion, and patience, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. And I think one of the key things that many people missed from working online in COVID is the, the social interactions in the workplace. There's conversations in the staff room, the conversations across the corridor, where you get that peer support and you're able to have those conversations. There are many people who those conversations have been problematic and have been able to distance themselves from it during COVID as well. So that's another perspective. I think what's really important from what you said, um, Nelson, all of it was vital, uh, vitally important. But one of the things that I just want to hone in on, on a little bit is how we create a sense of community around the work that we do. Because when you're a teacher who's doing this work and is starting to incorporate into their practice, the classroom can feel like a very lonely place and a very isolated place. Yeah. What can we do to ensure that teachers and, and schools keep in mind the need for there to be a learning community around the work that we do in order to make sure that teachers feel as safe as they possibly can yeah. to be able to take those risks, to feel vulnerable in the classroom and to see it as part of not just their own learning, but the learning of the community that they're a part of. Yeah, I mean, it's not easy is the first thing and it's not something that happens quickly either. It, we haven't cracked it by any means, but we're on the journey. And the more time passes, the more people are along for, for, along, along for the ride, I suppose. Mm. Um, how do you create those teaching communities? I suppose it depends on the setup of your structures. So we have 
uh, like I said before, we have their strategy groups, really, not necessarily teaching communities, but their strategy groups where people from around different uh, teams within the building are able to sit down and play a role in devising the strategies that we use to make sure that this work continues, not to just devise strategies, but to hold accountable those that have strategic responsibilities for that work to be carried out. Mm. So that gives a sense of empowerment to the members of staff that are on those particular groups. I suppose what else we've been doing is continuing to make sure that the work that we're doing is spoken about regularly. So in our staff briefings, there's a constant update on what type of work is happening, who's been involved in those work, in that work, what practice is happening in certain teams. And there's a constant sharing of shared practice through management systems, but through kind of whole staff meetings. And then that kind of the hope is that it, 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 it kind of gets disseminated and conversations in staff room organically continue to make sure those discussions happen and then people continue to share that. We have these things called lightning talks. So people have an opportunity to volunteer to share 10, 15 minutes of this is what I'm working on. This is experimentation I've been doing and these are the results that I've been having followed by 20, 30 minutes of a discussion with whoever wants to come along to say, I've got a question about this. How, how might you go about doing this? How did this bit work? What about this particular challenge? So we've got little moments of kind of pockets of more informal CPD where people can share the type of practice that they're doing. Not always anti-racist work, but it's work that involves garnering trust and garnering Mm -hmm. community so that when you do other types of work, the foundations exist or you try to make them exist. Yeah, and I love the fact you refer to trust as a foundation. Because I think that's one of the things that we miss all the time is having that that trust makes the process so much more easy. Um, people go on the journey with you if they know that they're not going to be left on their own along the way. And that there is that trust and there is that relationship. Yeah, there has to be a buy-in, right? And so it's slower, much like with your students. If you try and say, if you try and get your students to understand an idea because you're telling them that they need to understand it you're likely to face resistance. So we spend a lot of time thinking about how can we get buy-in from students. You have to rationalise and contextualise what it is you're doing and why you're doing it, and then have a dialogue around what might be the best strategies to implement what you're trying to implement. And once you get that sense of uh, empowerment and agency, you're more likely to get the trust and the, the movement forward. Like I say, it's not perfect, uh, and it takes mm-hmm. a lot of time, but that is that's the idea that we're working to working with. Yeah, Nahida, what about in your context in your school? I know that you already have a really strong learning community. What are some of the ways in which you've you've tried to establish that? It's really strange in leadership because it kind of seems counterintuitive. It almost feels like leaders think they've got to, you know, tell people what to do. That's what they think their job is, but it is counterintuitive because actually. What you need to do is listen more. What you need to do is kind of work in a powerful way that, you know, the power that you have is exactly what Nelson says. It's the quality of relationships. It's the trust you give. So, I mean, I can't talk about my episode because it was only last week. Um, It's all confidential. But staff did say, newer staff, they, they felt so empowered and trusted Number one, they were observed by Ofsted. Number two, they sat in debriefs with Ofsted people without senior leaders there. And it's just all of that kind of belief, um, having that belief and developing that trust. And we do something called implementation science. So when we want to introduce something or we want to an area of the school that we need to really improve, we develop what's called a vertical slice team. So that's a member of everybody across. Well, it sounds like a horrible thing, but it's a vertical slice. So it would be leaders, um, senior leaders and middle leaders, class teachers, teaching assistants, uh, learning support assistants, members of your admin team. So you take a vertical slice and they all are involved in kind of getting a sense of where are we at? What would children say about this thing? What would the adults say? What would we like them to be saying by the end of this implementation of this approach? And by having this vertical slice team, everybody's working on the change. 
And, and so that's become quite embedded in our culture so that everybody feels really important and their voice is valued in any change that we're trying to make. But like Nelson, it's about finding more and more opportunities to co-construct your approach, which is, it does seem counterintuitive because you think leaders think they've got to know where we, they're going. They've got to tell everybody, but they don't really, some people still don't believe that just completely disempowers and like in the classroom, children just kind of sit back passively nod and it becomes a performative sort of response rather than a deep commitment. So when you start co-constructing with direction, then you get a very different, and Nelson said it, you get a different buy-in, a different commitment. I mean, don't like mm -hmm. the term buy-in, it sounds capitalist and I'm anti-capitalist, but a different commitment, a different sort of just... People do it with their hearts and minds, you know. Mm. And, you know, it's like Che Guevara said, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, all revolutions are based on love. And I do this, think there's something about love in all of this work. But, you know, I probably sound like a silly old hippie, but that's just what I think. I think you're exactly right. I mean, I don't want to keep promoting um, the book club, Amuna, but part of the, the book club, anti-racist book club with Amuna, is that the book we're reading at the moment is called All About Love by Bell Hooks, and it talks about working with a love ethic. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what we're talking about here. Having a, a compassionate approach to education Absolutely. is about looking at the whole person and not just, you know, results in a piece of paper or the behaviour that you experience. You want to look at what's under, what is it that's causing the behaviour to occur. So, you know, behaviour is a form of communication. So it's about trying to look at what it is that's going on underneath. A lot of anti-racism work that, doesn't always do what it's supposed to do, focuses more on the symptoms of mm. anti-racism and not so much on the cause. So if you're trying to think about what the causes are and how you can make a change to those, you've got more of an opportunity to uh, be more effective and not so much on the symptoms, because as soon as you do that, obviously, another symptom appears and, and you're back to where you started. A couple of other things you mentioned mm. I just wanted to pick up on in terms of management, I suppose, it, and people's perceptions. Uh, much like with people, teachers in a classroom, it's that sense that we need to become enablers and empowerers of others and not leading from the front. We should be leading from a range of places. So, I, again, going back to what we've been doing in our college, we've been looking at leadership programs and coaching programs where we're looking at things like what's the difference between leadership and management and how a, an effective manager is also an excellent leader. And the leader is about, I suppose, creating ideas and, and, and delegating or, or, or uh, empowering others to, to move forward with particular ideas that they have as well. And I think that's something that is one of the ways that you can make sure that your learning communities can continue to promote anti-racist practices because you're constantly trying to think of ways to empower others. Um, and then you can kind of make sure that that's the type of structure or pedagogy that can be used in the classroom as well. Another thing that we do is um, we have we, we have used a reverse mentoring program, very similar to was it the vertical slice that you mentioned, um, which is making me hungry, I've got to say. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, so we've been using a reverse mentoring program or we had used it. So there was the staff get an opportunity to. Uh, so you had, I suppose, non-management staff and management staff were pairing up. to. So it was, again, a listening campaign, if you like, where the, the, the non-management staff were paired with a, a, a member of management or SLT, and they were able to talk about different aspects of their experiences within the college with a view to look at how that experience can lead to changing strategies to make us become more anti-racist. So there's a lot of opportunities to, yeah, get, like you say, it's about the idea of managers and leaders being listeners and not driving decisions through their own thoughts but the, the decisions and the strategies that are chosen come through listening be that through a reverse mentoring or we have blogs that we use as well where staff get to write blogs on, on whatever it is that they want to from a teaching and learning perspective but they often have an anti-racist slant to them and then that's another way for um to, to gather i suppose student student uh, sorry staff voice um, and of course, we've got student council. We've been doing listening campaigns with 
with uh, a range of different um, social action enterprises, again, as a way to empower the students to make sure that their voices are heard. So we've done two different racial justice listening campaigns that have, that have been a collaboration for a range of other uh, sixth forms or, or co national colleges in some cases um, and other kind of uh, social action enterprises to make sure that there's an opportunity for staff and students to make sure that they feel empowered and to feel loved, valued in terms of the work that we're trying to do. So th there's lots of different ways to try and garner that sense of community and, uh, and trust and, and social action. I suppose, is what we're trying to do, really. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to follow on from that, often when we are engaging with schools, the school leaders will reach out to us. And we do have very often school leaders that will come to us and almost tell us what they need. And so this is what we need from you. Can you do this? And our immediate response to them is, how have you got to the point, a place of naming what the issue is? What has informed this, this, this point that you're making. And sometimes they'll say, this is the issue that we've identified and this is what we think the solution to the problem is. And our invitation always is go back to your staff, go back to your students and listen. Yeah. Exactly as you said, Nahida, listen to what they're experiencing, listen to what they're identifying as the problems, and then go through a process of asking the right questions. You're not, you don't need to have the solution right at the beginning. It's just about listening and asking those right questions and building the trust so that those who share the space with you feel as though they can name what they're experiencing as well uh, and feel supported in doing that. The other thing I wanted to just quickly touch upon before we finish off is when we're engaging in this work, we're focusing on impact. And I know that that, that term gets thrown around a lot and sometimes can be used in really inappropriate and unethical ways. But it's really important for us when we're engaging in anti-racist practice to think about what progress looks like. So in your individual settings, what does progress look like and what do you have in place to think about progress, to think about impact and to support the learning communities and the staff that you work with to evidence the changes in their own practice and so that they can see the progress in the work that they're doing as well? So any effective organisation will always be evaluating the impact of what they're doing and that can be done quantitatively qualitatively but you know it is in when you ask children the question simple question finish this sentence I feel safe at Raffern because you know I feel happy at Raffern because and similarly you can ask the same of staff so that's one snapshot way of saying are we making impact is everyone feeling safe and to some extent, happy doesn't mean complacent. Happy doesn't mean unchallenged. You know, you'd obviously dig deeper. Mm. Obviously, there is a reality for us, an illusion that particularly groups of pupils are under just not achieving well. I mean, randomly the other day when I was knocked off, I fell off my bike. This young guy helped me, this young black man, he helped me and, you know, took me to the side of the road. And we just started chatting and he really looked after me. He's amazing. And he was telling me about school and the low expectations they had of him. And I thought about my children and the high expectations we have. I mean, and the outcomes being very strong, regardless of whatever race they are, whatever class they come from. Those, if, you know, we acknowledge what they bring with them to school but we also know that there is something that they need to get through before they leave so that they're ready for secondary and we make sure they do COVID or no COVID in a compassionate and supportive way. We work with them to give them the kind of learning and life experience that middle-class for want of a better word families give their children that love, but also challenge and stretch. So we would do it through asking questions. We would do it through observing the engagement. Um, to what extent are staff really committed to this? Is everybody involved in this kind of journey to become anti-racist? And it is a journey, it's not an end point. Yeah, that, those are some ways. Speaking with parents, for example, um, who are the parents who are coming to these decolonizing, the decolonizing approach at Rathburn? Is it just an echo chamber of specific, or is it families who are coming saying, how do we do this at home? 
So there's multiple ways that we can, but I think it's something that we continually need to ask ourselves, how are we measuring impact? Just in terms of the work I'm doing across the borough, we're doing it quite forensically. So we have done a very, I mean, I, you know, the, the results are there. We've done surveys from of pupils, kind of whole perception of their life school experience from year five up to year 13. And we'll be capturing, and we've also surveyed all staff across Lewisham schools. The engagement has been interesting. We're hoping that that engagement as we see more impact of the work and the programme we put in. We'll see that more people are completing the surveys, but the results over time should show impact. Did I answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I, I knew that there was a wealth of uh, resources that you had and the different things that you were doing. And I'm so glad that you didn't mention that just the generic auditing tools and the toolkits that many schools are opting for. And, and I think auditing is a really helpful approach in gathering evidences, but it's about doing everything that's around that as well, making sure that you're looking at engagement, making sure that you're capturing the voice of those who are, who are doing this work, and, and also making sure that there's a long-term commitment to this and recognizing that the only way to really measure impact is to sustain the work um, over time. So thank, thank you so much, Nelson. I mean, you've covered quite a lot of it already, really. I suppose it's yeah, the, the things that stick out the most for me, really, is the voice, making sure that the, the people involved, parents, local community, students, staff, feel like change is happening. And it was something that Kinda Andrew said in one of the previous podcast episodes. I can't remember exactly, and I'm probably going to, misquote quite heavily here but it was something around uh, the measuring success of your work is about looking at the people that are most oppressed and how well they're doing so you're not looking at people one or two people succeeding and becoming members of parliament but countries where there's significant um, deprivations and as a result of racist legacies so you want to measure success based on how the people that have had the least success how well are they doing so I suppose that's always a good way to think about how well you're doing things as well. And I suppose that, yeah, the, the kind of, we're also trying to use all of the systems that have already been mentioned, but also I suppose to show a sense of commitment internally and to, to the wider community, we've engaged in a, a few external providers to help us with, uh, with how to do that as well. So we've got something called an Investors in Diversity Action Plan, so there's a sense that you're getting judgments that are completely unbiased and objective. And so there can often be a sense that they hold more gravity from the people within institutions that might potentially be a little resistant to the type of work that you're doing. Yeah. So I think it's like you say, it's using all of the different systems available to you. So that's why we're trying to engage in external work. So we've also got this thing called an anti-racist schools award that we're trying to use because it, it, it can provide a, ro a robust framework that is um, gives us an opportunity to compare what we're doing um, with other institutions or in, in, in other settings to see where we sit, not only from progress made internally, for sort of a journey made within, with what we're doing, but also with what others are doing as well. So I suppose yeah that kind of sits with the idea of trying to use as many different ways as you can to make sure that you're gathering a sense of what type of impact you have yeah absolutely i think just capturing all of the resources that you have to hand and making sure that you're looking at the internal good practice that you have but also all of the external things that are happening that you could draw upon as well absolutely Nahida. i mean i just want to add that um last year lewisham um kind of all schools signed up to race equity pledge and of course, I didn't mention that. So it's continually checking kind of any changes, you know, to what extent are we, you know, really getting to the point where we can say this pledge is real. So mm -hmm. you know, have we reduced exclusions significantly for certain groups? Is there greater representation in leadership um, and governing bodies? So the pledge is another very concrete way of helping schools to reflect on their journey towards 
kind of really embedding race equity and at every opportunity we use the pledge to frame conversations to support schools not to beat them in any way but just to say look we'll be getting towards some way of saying we're making a difference when we can say this part of the pledge there's been a shift or this you know all the different elements yeah yeah. Absolutely. Nelson Nahida, thank you so much for joining me on a Friday evening uh, and sharing so much of your wisdom and experience and, and the labour of this work. It is labour, it's hard, it's not easy. And I, I, from the bottom of my heart, thank you both for the commitment that you put into doing this work before COVID, through COVID, and now as we're entering into the post-COVID space. Um, and doing it in such an unwavering way. I'm sure there's so many gems and tips that people are going to be taking from listening to both of you. So just once again, thank you so much. This work isn't easy for educators. It isn't easy to step back into the classroom after months, a year and a half, almost two years of visceral trauma and anxiety and uncertainty, and then go into a space of trying to work differently, think differently, engage differently, but we need to. This work isn't easy. But in order for us to be compassionate in the spaces that we hold, in order to be able to see ourselves and those we work with through a different lens, we have to be willing to work. I want to leave you with a quote by Paolo Freire that really underlines the act of reciprocity in teaching and learning. Whoever teaches learns in the act of teaching and whoever learns teaches in the act of learning. The classrooms are sites of possibility for us. The schools are sites of transformation. We really have the opportunity to make a difference. It's important that this work continues.